to come out and to the church. We'll take your Bibles and we'll be in Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6 is arguably one of the most well-known chapters in all of the Bible. Daniel chapter 6 is the account of Daniel and the lion's den. And I'm excited when Pastor Bruce asked me to preach this message. There was just so much in Daniel chapter 6 that I had to split it up into two parts. Tonight, or this morning I'm preaching part one. Tonight we're preaching part two. But I hope you come back tonight because there's a lot of truths that you might not be going through right now, but one day when you do find yourself in the proverbial den of life, there's some truths that we can glean from Daniel's life that will help us in those situations. Daniel chapter 6 will begin in verse number 1. The Bible says it pleased Darius. Okay, time out. Darius. Because we know of that evil king in the last five chapters whose name is Nebuchadnezzar. We know of that guy. We know Nebuchadnezzar was the one who threw the three Hebrew boys in the den, in, into the, the fire, into the fiery furnace. We know Nebuchadnezzar. At this point, Nebuchadnezzar is no longer the ruler of Babylon. It's Darius. Nebuchadnezzar has been off the scene now for approximately 25 years. He's been dead. No more Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, we kind of skipped a chapter in the, in the chronological order of Daniel. We skipped chapter 5, but in chapter 5, Nebuchadnezzar isn't even the king either. We find that it's Belshazzar. But chapter 6, Darius is the king. It's important to note that Darius is not of the Babylonian kingdom. Darius is of the Medo-Persian Empire, which is prophesied, if you remember, when Daniel preached in Daniel, er, uh, Pastor Bruce preached in Daniel chapter 2. You remember the statue that Nebuchadnezzar had the dream of, and it had the golden head, and it had the arms, and it had the, the body, and the legs, and the feet? Well, that is the prophecy that is being unfolded right before our very eyes in this chapter. No longer is the Babylonian Empire the empire of the world. It's now the Medo-Persians, which moves to the arms. So um, Darius is the commander of the Medo-Persian Empire at this time. Okay, so now we know who Darius is and what he does. Let's see what he does, okay? So it pleased Darius in verse 1 to set over the kingdom a hundred and twenty princes. It should be over the whole kingdom. Over these three presidents, of whom Daniel was first, that the princes might give accounts to them, and the, and the king should have no damage. Then this, Daniel was preferred above the princes, because of an excellent spirit was in him. And the king sought to set over the whole realm. This microphone has given me a lot of problems, so I might switch over to, um, I'll switch over to this one, guys. This is uh, number seven. I don't want to. There we go. What we read about is Darius decides the first thing that he's going to do in his empire is he's going to set over and he's going to organize presidents and he's going to organize princes. And we read in verse number three that when Daniel was preferred above the presidents and princes because an excellent spirit was within him. Verse four. And the presidents and princes sought to find occasion against Daniel concerning the kingdom. Now, why in the world would these presidents and princes look for something to criticize about Daniel's life? I think it's stated very well by Nick Saban. He's the coach of the Alabama uh, football team. Nick Saban said this, mediocre people don't like high achievers, and high achievers don't like mediocre people. So when Daniel, because he was preferred above the princes, they got a little jealous. 
because he had an excellent spirit within him. Now, it's funny that everyone in the king, all the presidents and the princes, they wanted Daniel to fail. By the way, it's kind of interesting that the world looks at Christians and they kind of, they kind of rejoice a little bit when we fail. When there's, a, when there's a pastor, regardless of the denomination, if there's a pastor in a religious setting and he, he fails morally, it's kind of like a, a silent hurrah in the, in the world's eyes. Why is that? Now, this is just my opinion. This doesn't come from Scripture. But I think probably a reason why people rejoice when Christians fail is because it gives, the, gives people a reason not to be a Christian. There's a lot of reasons not to be a Christian. Because the devil doesn't want people to be Christians. So if there's somebody who has a conviction that they know they're missing something in their life, maybe they've been invited to church and they're about to go, but all of a sudden one of their friends who's a Christian fails, they can point to him and say, no, see, I'm not going to be a Christian because of this person. We were taking a senior trip to Washington, D.C., my senior year, and we were riding the subway, which is a really cool experience, the underground subways. And you never know who you're going to meet on the subway. I was sitting down. I had to sit next to a man. And I struck up a conversation with this man. And I invited him to the the church that was in Washington, D.C. that we were going to go to. And he gave an answer that maybe you have heard before. He said, the reason why I'm not a Christian, the reason why I don't go to church, is because I know another Christian who's a hypocrite. And while that shouldn't be said of us, I feel like that's kind of a cop-out answer. You don't be the reason why people aren't Christians, but if there's someone who is looking at a Christian say, I'm not going to be a Christian because of him, well, they're just looking for a reason not to go to church. They're looking for a reason to ignore the convictions of the Holy Spirit. And I think that's the case with these presidents and princes. They're looking for a reason. They're looking for an error in Daniel's life to where they can look at and see and say, Daniel, see, he's not perfect. He messes up just like the rest of us. Let's continue reading in verse number five. And said these men, we shall not find any occasion against this Daniel except we find it against him concerning the law of his God. A powerful statement. These presidents and princes investigated the life of Daniel looking for a speck of dirt on his life. They couldn't find it. Think of Philippians 2, 14 through 15, when Paul says, Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. Number six. And these presidents and princes assembled together to the king and said unto him, King Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the governors and the princes and the counselors and the captains have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whosoever shall ask a petition of any god or man for 30 days, save thee, O king, he shall be cast into the den of lions. So do you get the picture in your mind? These presidents and princes send out investigators to investigate the life of Daniel. And these investigators come back and say, hey, look, Daniel, he's a pretty great guy. He doesn't have any specks of dirt on him. I, we, we looked at his mail. We looked at everything. We, we overheard him talking to people. And there is absolutely nothing that we can get this guy on. So the presidents and princes are like, oh, man, well, then let's make a law. Because if we make a law, 
against his God, then we know for sure that he's going to break that law. Are y'all following me right now? So they make a law. And here they present it to Darius. Verse number uh, 8. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing that it be not changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which altereth not. You'll see the according to the law of the Medes and Persians, that that phrase mentioned a couple times in this scripture. The reason why that's important is because according to the law of the Medes and Persians, you can't change a law. In Nebuchadnezzar, if he wanted to make a law and retract it, he could. But in the Medes and Persian empire, if, you, if the king makes a law, he doesn't even have the power to reverse that law. Verse 9. Therefore, King Darius signed the writing and the decree. It would seem as if Daniel in a lose-lose situation. If he prays, he gets thrown into the den of lions. If he doesn't pray, he compromises his faith. In many ways, this is a precautionary message to all of us in this room. But we still have the liberty to pray. We still have the liberty to read our Bibles. We still have the liberty to go knocking on doors and proclaim our faith. But in a lot of ways, the message is to us today. Think of the football coach, Joe Kennedy, who was told that he could not pray at the 50-yard line after his games. I think we have a picture of Joe Kennedy up there. Mr. Joe Kennedy, me and Pastor Bruce had the privilege of meeting him uh, this past summer. And he, after every single game, he had the habit of after every game, he would go kneel at the 50-yard line and give thanks to God whether win or lose. A couple of the parents didn't like that he was doing that. So they brought it to the school board. The school board said, Mr. Joe, Coach Joe, you are no longer able to pray at the 50-yard line. If you do, then you're going to lose your job. Lose-lose situation. Prays, he loses his job. He doesn't pray, he compromises his faith. I think of the cake maker, uh, Mr. Phillips. is the Lakewood cake baker who had the conviction that marriage is between a man and a woman when a, a gay couple came to get a cake for their wedding, he said, I'm not going to do it. Well, then they sued him. Who's loose situation? If he makes the cake, he compromises his faith. If he doesn't make the cake, then he's going to get sued. You know, you may be in a situation like that today. I don't know what exactly it may be. If you're not in it today, then the way our world is on the trajectory of, then it's going to be pretty soon that you're going to find yourself in a lose-lose situation. So let's look at the life of Daniel. Let's look at Daniel's responses. And I believe there's three priorities of victors in lose-lose situations. There's three things on a victor's mind and victor's heart. Whenever he's presented with a lose-lose situation, he says, no, these are my priorities, and these three priorities are priorities that we ought to have in our life today. Priority number one, Daniel prioritized consistency over compromise. Consistency over compromise. If you look at verse number 10, the last couple words of that is, as he did aforetime. Consistency is very rare in this world. Because consistency is rare, I think it's what makes stories like Cha Sa Soon so incredible. I have a picture of Miss Cha, Grandma Cha. She was a 60-year-old lady, and she was living in South Korea. And this 60-year-old lady decided that it was about time for her to get her driver's license. 
Every morning she had to wake up at 4 a.m., wait for the bus. And so it was kind of inconvenient, and her parents and family was urging her to go ahead and get your driver's license so you can be in control of your own schedule. You don't have to wait on the bus. So she said, you know what? I'm going to apply for my driver's license and take the test. So she went into the DMV. She gave the $5 application fee. She got the test. She failed it. Ten tries later, $5 every time, take the test, and she failed it. hundred times later, took the test, failed it. Two hundred times later, took the test and failed it. Four hundred times later, she still had no driver's license. Seven hundred times, she still had no driver's license. Attempt number 950, she finally passed and got her driver's license. Now, I don't know if I want to be driving with this lady if it takes her that many attempts to get her driver's license. What's ironic about it is that her name literally means vehicle. So I just thought, I thought that was interesting. I kind of made me chuckle. The story of persistence and consistency, not quitting, not saying, oh, well, it's my 100th attempt. I failed. Oh, well, I'll just ride a scooter to work. No, it's the art and it's the, it's the characteristic of stick to Something that's inside of you that says, I'm not going to give up during adversity. If there is a little bit of adversity, that's not going to make me stop. I'm going to keep doing my thing. I'm going to be consistent, and that was Daniel's life. The first priority of Daniel's life was he prioritized consistency over compromise. First, I see consistency in his public life. We look through the book of Daniel, and we see stories littered with Daniel being consistently faithful to God. I think it starts in Daniel chapter 1 and verse number 8 when he purposed in his heart that he was not going to defile himself. Think about relentlessness. When he was just a little boy, probably 15 years old, he purposed in his heart. And it was such a resolve to that even when he faced adversity in his life, he wasn't going to give in. Consistency. You look at the, the verses before when it says everyone knew he had an excellent spirit within, in him. It was very evident that Daniel lived in a way that he had a relationship with God. Can it be said of you that you're consistent in your public life? Set aside the private life for now, which is the most important thing in my opinion. Let's focus on the public life. I wonder when the church doors are open, do we have to wonder, is this family going to be here? I wonder if they're going to show up to small group. Just, just consistency in our lives, in our public lives. Daniel was a very consistent person in his public life. And that's something that we should strive to emulate as well in our lives. More importantly than public life, we see his private life. God is infinitely more concerned about who you are and who you appear to be. God's infinitely concerned with who you are rather than who you appear to be. Daniel was not just putting on a show so people could look at him and say, wow, look at Daniel. It wasn't a show to Daniel. It was something that was very real in his heart. You, just, you look at verse number 10. Now, when Daniel knew the writing was signed, he went in unto his house, and the windows being opened in his chambers toward Jerusalem, he kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as he did aforetime. Sometimes we think that Daniel knew that the writing, or before he knew the writing was signed, he might have just closed his windows. I don't think he did that because the verse says, as he did aforetime. This isn't some show that Daniel saw the law and said, oh, I'm going to really show them. I'm going to open up my windows and I'm going to pray and, and let everyone see. That's not how it was. 
Even when the spotlight was not on Daniel, when the eyes of scrutiny were not on Daniel, Daniel still decided that he was going to be consistent to God. It's amazing to me that there's, there are sections of the book of Daniel where there's about 20 years of space in between. In those 20 years, we don't see Daniel on the scene at all. Then we pick up in chapter 5, and all of a sudden, when they need Daniel, he's ready. He didn't have to get right before God and then go on the public scene. No, he was ready in his own house because the private life is eventually going to reveal in the public life. But don't get so mixed up in your mind to where I need to do this in my private life or public life when we neglect the private life. Consistent in your private life and be consistent in your public life. When you are faced with those times of adversity, you are faced with the supposed lose-lose situation when if I do this, I lose, and if I do this, I lose. What's priority number one? Be consistent. Be consistent. So consistency is difficult because emotions are very fickle. Anyone else relate to that? My emotions are very fickle sometimes. I can feel one way, one minute, and literally the next minute I can feel completely different. Consistency is not about relying on your emotions, because if we all made decisions upon our emotions, well, then I think our lives would reflect a very up-and-down life. Like the encouragement that Paul gave in the verses in your outline, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain, in the Lord. Hebrews says, Wherefore, seeing we are compassed about so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that doth so easily beset us, and let us run the race with patience that is set before us. Paul describes our Christian life as a race. It's not a sprint. I think this race would be more closely related to a marathon. You're not going to go down and sprint a marathon probably not even going to go sprint a 3k or a 5k or a 6k 10k whatever it's about being consistent it's not about getting there the fastest the christian life isn't about i gotta do this 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 no the christian life is about being consistent so as you reflect on your life are you consistent your family your attendance to church because consistency key one main reason why consistency is so important is that God has been so faithful to us. And consistency allows us to be able to respond to God's faithfulness to us. You may be in here this morning and you don't have a relationship with God. You came with a friend. Maybe you're here with family on Thanksgiving and you just decided to stay over. You may be in here and you've heard this message probably 15 times and you could preach it better than I could. It's not about what you know up here. It's about what you know in your heart and what you believe in your heart. If you don't have a relationship with God, I encourage you to get that settled today. Because there's no hope of you being consistent for God if you don't first have a relationship with God. Priority number one, consistency over compromise. Priority number two, Daniel decided to prioritize God over government. God over government. Who set up the institution of the government? God. We as Christians shouldn't walk around with this attitude of looking for things to defy it, to live in defiance 
about with the government. It's not like the government is our enemy, right? The government isn't our enemy. God instituted the government, right? And Paul says it best in Romans 13, verse 1. Let every, be, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for the, there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Jesus said in, in uh, the gospel, render unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's. We should pay our tax. We should be respectful and compliant with the government. But what happens when the government tells you to do something that God said otherwise? And that's the predicament that Daniel found himself in. Supposed to obey the government unless the government contradicts what God has said. That's what we find. Daniel's government said there is no prayer, make no request to anyone save the King Darius. Not save King Jesus, not save, not save God. You can only make requests to Darius. Well, that goes against what Daniel knew in his heart. But when they contradict got to obey God rather than man. I think the first area that Daniel obeyed God in, it, it was in his life. Looking at Daniel's life, it's very clear that Daniel had a relationship with God as we already established. This is a very convicting question for myself. If there was someone who decided to sue you for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence in your life to convict you of that crime? If they were to dissect every part of your life, your entertainment, your music, your activities, your speech, your friends, the places you go, if they were to investigate every area in your life, would there be enough evidence to convict you of being a Christian? Because let's be real, we all want to be the hero of our own story. And sometimes we, we create scenarios in our mind where we say, well, I'd be willing to, to die for God. If there was someone who came in here and said, I'm going to kill you if you're a Christian and stand up if you are, I'd be the one to stand. I'd be the one to die for God. Whenever the government decides to ban the Bible, I'm going to be the one to read the Bible and I'll be faithful till the death. But you're never going to be willing to die for God if you're not willing to live for him. Are you living for God now? Does your life reflect that of a Christian or would it reflect that of someone who doesn't even know of God? Daniel decided that he was going to obey God rather than government in his life, which led to he was willing to obey God rather than government in his death as well. So in this story, it's kind of a question that I ask myself. I understand that he prioritized consistency. I understand that he prioritized God. But there's kind of a question that I, I have to step back and ask myself looking at this story. And the question is, why did Daniel not close the windows? Why did Daniel not close the windows? You look in verse number 10, and it clearly says, now when Daniel knew the writing was signed, he went to his house and his windows being opened. It would kind of make sense in my mind to close the windows. You could make the argument Daniel would have still been consistent if he would have closed the windows. You can make the argument that Daniel would have still obeyed God rather than government if he closed the windows. Why did Daniel open the windows? This is the third priority that I, I want us to dwell on. Daniel prioritized opportunity over obligation. What is the purpose of your life? Ever just stop and ask yourself that question? What's the purpose of my life? Is it to make money? Is it to pursue happiness? Why do you get up in the morning? Is it to go to the job and climb the corporate ladder? 
What is the purpose of your life? According to Google, purpose of your life is to personally evolve by learning and growing. According to Aristotle, happiness is the meaning and purpose of life, the whole aim and end of human existence. One person said, my goal in life is to build a life that I don't need a vacation from. It's a good goal. One person said, the purpose of my life is to give 100% in anything I do, unless it's giving blood. And I thought that was pretty wise. That, that's an important asterisk in that, because if you give 100% of your blood, you don't have any more life. What's the real purpose of life? What's the purpose of your life? When you boil down the purpose of your life, individually, your purpose is to glorify God. That's it. No other reason why you're on this earth but to glorify God. The word glorify means exazo, meaning to exalt, to magnify. The only reason when we boil all the frivolity down to the true core of why you're on this earth is to glorify God. Your purpose is to make the Lord big. It's to exalt him and it's to magnify him. So that means that if you do anything but glorify God, then you're not fulfilling your purpose. And thus, you're not going to have a fulfilling life. We all have tried to fill the void with money and with sin and with a lot of things that don't matter. We've all tried to fill that void. But the reason why it doesn't fulfill is because it's exactly opposite of why we're on this earth. The purpose that you are here is not to magnify yourself. The purpose that you're here is, as John the Baptist said, he must increase and I must decrease. You are here to glorify God in everything that you do. Did you glorify God this morning? What are evidences today that you can point to and say, this is how I exalted God. This is how I magnified God. Because sometimes we categorize life without separating life into days. I want to live my life for God. Well, are you living your days for God? Are you living your minutes for God? Are you living today for God? Because today is what your life is made of. All your life is made up of are days like these. So if you're not glorifying God today, then when you get to the end of your life, you're going to look back and say, what a wasted life. Pursued happiness. Pursued money. I pursued pleasure. When you get to the end of your life, that doesn't matter. The only thing that's going to matter in your life is glorifying God. By the way, when we get to heaven, we're still going to glorify God. One of the ways that we glorify God today is by leading people to the Lord and encouraging the brethren. One day we're not going to have the opportunity to lead people to the Lord. One day we're not going to have the opportunity to encourage the brethren. When we get to heaven, we're not going to have an ended time where we say, oh, we can't glorify God anymore. That's what we're going to be doing for all of eternity. So let's just get some practice in and decide to glorify God today. An opportunity to glorify God. Secondly, it's an opportunity to prove God. Opportunity to prove God. <clears throat> Psalm 34, 17 said, The righteous cry, and the Lord heareth, and delivereth them out of all their troubles. A couple chapters later, it says, but the salvation and of the righteousness of the Lord is of the Lord. He is their strength in the time of trouble, and the Lord shall help them and deliver them. He shall deliver them from the wickedness and save them because they trust in him. What an opportunity Daniel had to prove the promises of the Lord. 
rather than viewing this as an obligation, well, I have to pray, I have to open my windows, I have to be consistent, Daniel recognized that this situation that he was in, this supposed lose-lose situation, in fact, was an opportunity to glorify God and an opportunity to prove God. There's a lot of promises in the Bible specifically for you. And when you find yourself in a very difficult situation, that difficult situation is not there so you can waste it. That difficult situation, that lose-lose situation when, there's, when you're in a box and there's no way out, you're, you're put there so you can glorify God and so you can prove God. Daniel said, okay, God, if I get thrown into the den of lions, if I don't, if I don't ever live another day on this earth, so be it, but I'm going to let this be an opportunity where I can prove you. Can't help but think of this building program. What opportunity that we have to prove God at his word. Give shall be given. You have the opportunity to test God on his promise. Don't miss opportunity. Because if you decide not to prove God now, all of a sudden, when you fast forward a couple years and that building is put up, we're meeting over there, we have a beautiful view of the sleeping you, and we have a beautiful view of all the mountains, you're going to be saying, I wish I would have taken that opportunity to prove God. Because you'll never regret seizing opportunities to prove God at his word. You'll seize the opportunity rather than viewing it as an obligation. So let's look at verse 11. And these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God, caught red-handed. They came near and spake before the king concerning the king's decree. Hast thou not signed a decree that every man that shall ask a petition of any god or man within thirty days, save thee, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? King answered and said, uh, Yep, this thing is true, according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which altereth not. And I can almost see them saying, oh, yes, we got him. Verse 13, then they, they answered and they said before the king, that Daniel, which is of the children of the captivity of Judah, regardeth not thee, O king, for the decree that thou hast signed, but maketh his petitions three times a day. And the king, when he heard these words, was sore displeased with himself and set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. He labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. Then these men assembled unto the king and said unto the king, Know, O king, that the law of the Medes and Persians is that no decree or statute which the king established it may be changed. The king commanded. They brought Daniel, cast him into the den of lions. The king spake and said unto Daniel, God whom thou servest, continually he will deliver thee. And a stone was brought and laid upon the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords that the purpose might not be changed concerning Daniel. Daniel finds himself in the lion's den. This lose-lose situation, priorities of Daniel still find him in the lion's den. The story ended right there. After verse 17 came chapter 7. We didn't know how Daniel fared. We didn't know if he lived. We didn't know if he died. If the story ended right there, knowing that Daniel was in the lion's den, do you still view Daniel the victor? Do we look at Daniel's life and say, Daniel lived a successful Christian life even though he died? See, the purpose of life isn't to escape from trials unharmed. Sometimes God allows us to do that. 
Sometimes we can find ourselves in horrible, horrible, horrible situations. God delivers us. Sometimes he doesn't deliver us. We have to realize life is not about us. Easy as that is to say, it's hard to believe that, that we're not here for us. The purpose of your life is to give glory to God. And if Daniel were to have died in the lion's den, Daniel still would have been a victor. Because he died in glory to God. Whatever situation that you're in, no matter how hopeless it seems, no matter how dark it seems, just remember that you have the opportunity to give God glory in that situation. Tonight, we're going to look at deliverance from the den. I'm so excited to present the message how God does deliver us. The message this morning has no focus on the end of the story. Focus of this message is that your life your purpose on life is to give glory and honor to God, period. Who are you? Are you giving glory to God in your low points? Are you giving glory to God in your high points? Because that's the whole purpose of why we're here. Bow our heads and close our eyes.